Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Ben Stoff from Emory University, and I'm excited to host a second installment of Dialogues about Dataderm, which is the AAD's clinical data registry. I have several guests to have a dialogue on this important topic. First is Dr. Bob Swirlick, professor and chair of the Department of Dermatology here at Emory. Dr. Swirlick is also co-chair of the Dataderm Oversight Committee and chair of the Data Governance Task Force with the AAD. Next, we have Dr. Bob Delavalle, professor of dermatology and public health at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Also, Dr. Jeff Jacobs, Professor of Surgery and Pediatrics at the University of Florida. Dr. Jacobs is also Physician Advisor for Data Derm at the AAD. Finally, Dr. Gary Curhan, Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital, also Chief Medical Officer at OM1, a healthcare data and technology company. Welcome to all of you. Thank you for joining us. I want to jump right in. We're going to sort of start with the current state of Data Derm. Dr. Swirlick, what are some of the milestones that have already been achieved by Datadurm thus far? So I'd like to just sort of step back and, and remember where Datadurm started. And that was uh, approximately five to six years ago when it was created as an ad hoc task force uh, by the uh, American Academy of Dermatology. And in that five years, the registry has matured. And this November, it has transitioned, the oversight has transitioned from an ad hoc task force to a permanent oversight committee. And doctors Van Beek and myself, who are co-chairs of the ad hoc task force, have moved to being co-chairs of the oversight committee. And uh, this was just happened as of November, the early November of this year. The registry itself has almost 800 active practices and just short of 2,300 active clinicians who participate. There are 12 million unique patients who are incorporated within the registry and over 40 million patient visits, and that's information through March of this year. We've got participation across multiple states, has the highest concentration in the South and in the highest population states, such as New York, Pennsylvania, and California. And there are large numbers of patients with the common diagnoses that are seen in dermatology that are represented with, within the registry. For example, there are almost 700,000 patients with basal cell carcinomas. There are almost 400,000 with squamous cell carcinomas. And at this point, I think that uh, the current state of the registry is summarized well by that. Wow, really impressive. So in five or six years, going from something that was sort of a temporary thing within the AD to a more permanent fixture, 800 practices, 2,300 clinicians, 12 million patients, and 40 million patient visits. Really impressive stuff. One of the applications of Datadurm is in the research realm. Dr. Delavalle, what are some of the ways in which Datadurm is currently being used for research? Well, I think one of the really exciting things about Datadurm is I think every dermatologist has questions that could be answered by the database. Two questions that were coming to my mind that I've been exploring with other databases were one, what antibiotics are being used for acne? 
And are those uses promoting resistance by not following guidelines for antibiotic use? Another question is, there's a new uh, biologic for um, moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, uh, dupilumab, and how is that being used by dermatology practices? So these are the two projects that have drawn me into Dataderm in addition to my role on the governance committee as a member of that committee. And it's going to be exciting to see how the Dataderm database compares to my hospital's database and what the difficulties are in answering these questions, because it's always very conceptually easy to think of these questions and then to clean the data and actually find out the answers is very difficult or much more difficult than we usually anticipate. Great. Thanks, Dr. Delavalle. Can you talk maybe a little bit more about some of the, you know, advantages of using the Dataderm registry and maybe some of the barriers to use as well that you've run into in your research so far? Well, I can't talk too much about it because our research has just been starting in Dataderm, but it will be a completely different group of practitioners. It'll be a largely private practice, nationally based group, much larger and broader than what I can access in my university's University of Colorado, uh, one location practice. So it'll be interesting to compare the local to the more national, the university to the more private practice-based data. Fantastic. Really practical questions. Dr. Swirlick, a comment from you? Yeah. One of the theoretical advantages that hasn't quite, quite come to fruition is our ability to marry the administrative part of the database, that is all the diagnosis and uh, codes and the medication codes, ultimately with what is in the free text of the note codes, because with our partnership with OM1, um, there is the possibility or the likelihood that we're going to be able to harvest data, of course, de-identified data within the free text notes, which will provide a much richer database than currently exists in other proprietary administrative databases that are out there. Great. Thanks, Dr. Swirlick. Very interesting stuff. I think there's a lot of excitement as this continues to burgeon about future applications for the registry. One that is cited is a kind of advocacy capability. Dr. Jacobs, I know you have pretty extensive experience with registries and use of registries for various purposes. What are some advocacy-oriented usages that might be envisioned for Dataderm? Well, I would say that one of the most beneficial aspects of having a large-scale multi-institutional registry is the ability to use information from that registry to support professional advocacy. And multiple examples exist where professional medical societies, such as the American Academy of Dermatology, are able to utilize multi-institutional information from multi-institutional registries to advocate for their profession. And this advocacy can span across multiple governmental and non-governmental organizations. Some examples that come to mind is that data from a multi-institutional registry can be utilized to support dialogues that revolve around coding that might take place at the American Medical Association CPT Advisory Committee. And then the related 
discussions that evolved from the CPT into the RUC, the Relative Value Unit Update Committee, where information is used to support discussions about charges, collections, billing, and value. So that's two examples where this information can be used for professional advocacy, but multiple other examples also exist. Over the course of time, it's not unusual that the American Academy of Dermatology is going to have dialogues with the FDA or the CDC about various research questions and various scientific questions, and the AAD might be called to provide expert opinion about these topics. And what better source of information for that expert opinion than a multi-institutional registry like Dataderm? And even basic dialogues with CMS involving value of healthcare, healthcare reimbursement and healthcare structure. All those dialogues can also be supported by information from Dataderm. And I think clearly the main purpose of having a registry like Dataderm is not professional advocacy. The main purpose is really to assess and improve quality of care and also to generate new knowledge. But beyond improving quality of care and generating new knowledge, multiple examples exist where these data will be used to advocate for the profession of dermatology by the American Academy of Dermatology. Great. Thanks, Dr. Jacobs. Yes, I think obviously follow the data where it leads. Um, but if a byproduct is the ability to advocate, that also seems like something that could be exciting and useful in the various organizations we interface with across the healthcare spectrum would be really useful toward that end. There have been some mentions of a collaboration with OM1, as has been discussed earlier. We have a representative from OM1 here with us, Dr. Kurhan, Chief Medical Officer. Dr. Kurhan, if you could just talk a little bit about the collaboration with Dataderm and what maybe some new capabilities the registry has had based upon that collaboration. I want to say for OM1 that the collaboration between the AAD and our company has just been very exciting. It's gotten off to a great start. We're actively working on increasing the research capabilities of the Dataderm registry, which itself is already rich, but as Dr. Swirl mentioned before, there's even more value within the existing data. So OM1's efforts are to enhance the quality of the data that's there. And one of the ways that we do that is by taking information from the, what we call unstructured data. It's really the clinical notes. We also can assess the validity of variables. We can extract information from a variety of different sources in addition to the provider's notes. We can amplify endpoint information. So as you know, there's lots of disease activity scores that are often used in clinical trials, but are not always used in clinical practice. But once we have enough of those values and we're actively working on this, that we can start to impute out these uh, disease activity scores using structured and unstructured data. And we've already done this for other disease conditions outside of dermatology, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, where in fact, there are ways to impute these important outcomes. We're also, by working closely with the AD, we're going to start prospectively collect hard to get measures such as patient reported outcomes, clinician reported outcomes, and that's gonna be done uh, prospectively by signing up different practices. Um, we're also in discussion about the potential to collect images, whether uh, standardized from the practices or for the patients themselves. I also want to say that the data can be used for safety surveillance. We have the ability to link our data to other data sources. So even though, as was previously described, there's a huge amount of dermatology information available by being able to link it with these tokens that are, of course, are de-identified. OM1 has data on over 300 million patients and over 90 million have EMR data. So we are now able to look at the overlap between 
our other data sources and non-dermatologic data sources and the data derm registry, and that just dramatically increases the value and the, the breadth of the data. So we also can start to follow patients across sites of care. We can also look at the dermatologic aspects of other conditions, such as the psoriasis to psoriatic arthritis transition, look at the relationship between psoriasis and cardiovascular disease, um, mental health conditions in patients with dermatologic conditions. So all, all sorts of very exciting things. In addition, we have the ability to identify patients with either rare conditions or atypical presentations of more common conditions. Fascinating stuff. I mean, it, it sounds as though the collaboration with OM1 kind of at least partly addressed a particular problem that was being encountered, I know, based on Dr. Swirlick's comments and on our prior interview about Datadurm, the ability to sort of access some of the unstructured data, validate data. Some of the data were difficult to interpret initially for research or other purposes, and it sounds like some of the technology you have access to might allow for cleaner data to be used both within the field and across specialties. Is that right? Yeah, and I would say not just cleaner, but it's really enhanced. I, yeah. There's so much value in the notes that the providers are writing. For those of us that are using some certain EMRs, you know, where they just want us to check boxes, a lot of that isn't necessarily for direct patient care. But you know, if we we actually can see the notes, we can actually see if the patient's getting better, if they're getting worse, what some of the patient concerns are. But because of the challenges within everyday practice, many important outcomes that we'd like information on, such as patient-reported outcomes and the clinician-reported outcomes, we're now able to team with the AAD practices, uh, the data term practices, and collect prospectively this additional information. So it's really identifying certain gaps in the data, and, and those are being recognized in ways that we can fill those to improve both patient care as well as research opportunities. Fabulous. Really exciting. I think the question about sort of future of research is segued from that comment by Dr. Curhan. Dr. Delavalle, I mean, I, you've talked a little bit about how you're already using the registry for research purposes. What are sort of some ways you envision this in the future, perhaps using more kind of local data for research purposes, clinical research or otherwise? Yeah, I, I think Dr. Bob Brodell at the University of Mississippi is really leading the way in bringing academic medical centers into Datadurm to contribute their data and meld the two. So I, I really look to him as a mentor in this whole regard of bringing in local people. I have a fellow now for a number of years who specializes in uh, big data and dermatology, something I never imagined when I started in dermatology. And I keep thinking I really should have somebody who wants to be a coder rather than a dermatologist take this fellowship because <laughs> it's really hard to find somebody with both sets of skills these days. You're really going to be quite a, a draw to just anybody in the nation doing this type of research if you can do both the coding and the thinking about big data and the dermatology. So it's, it's really creating a new field in dermatology uh, that we have to think about in the future. Yeah, great stuff. You heard it here. Looking for coders <laughs> among applicants for dermatology <laughs> residency. But I think it's true. It really is. A, it's, it's a new um, set of skills that I think has good application. Yes, Dr. Brodell was part of our first interview on data derm and has, has talked quite a bit about how to get involved. And on that note, what are some of the ways in which the data derm community are attempting to get buy-in from academic medical centers, uh, other people, you know, other um, institutions involved in this? Dr. Swirlick, is there a particular strategy for that? Yes. So we've actually succeeded in onboarding two academic centers. Dr. 
Rodell's University of Mississippi Department of Dermatology, and then Kevin Cooper at University Hospitals in Cleveland. And the person who is writing point on this is Karen Etkin, and she's developed a recruitment strategy and sort of an onboarding toolkit and has reached out to a number of academic medical centers. According to my latest count, she's in discussions with 13 academic medical centers, and it has been made a priority for Datadurm this year because there's an understanding that while the registry has grown and is quite significant, it is not representative of various populations across the country. And the uh, access to academic medical center data as opposed to community practice should increase the access to rare diseases, complex medical derm, underserved patient groups, diversity of payer mix. And that's this year, it's high priority. And there are a number of potential challenges, but the Academy is, is uh, putting resources on sort of understanding what those challenges and bottlenecks will be. And hopefully it, when we have the next podcast on where Datadurm is next year or the year after, we'll have a number of it more academic centers. Our own academic center, we're doing a deployment of a new electronic medical record. So I haven't thought to ask yet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sparing us, Bob. That's great. Yes. So clearly a priority is to get more people involved. You know, just for the sake of discussion here, let's say we have a listener who is affiliated with a, an institution that would like to get involved. What would be kind of the first steps? It sounds like there's a kind of a toolkit that's been prepared by the AAD. What would be the sort of the initial way to dive in? Contact Karen Etkin. <laughs> Literally, you know, uh, and uh, we can supply them with her email because part of our discussions were this idea of finding physician champions at each institution who say this is important. We want to participate in this. And they're our contact person. That's actually one of the limiting factors. And I'll just mention it for the record here. We do have an an email for Karen, C-E-T-K-I-N at AAD.org. Great. Dr. Curran, you had a comment? Yeah, I just want to make sure that the academic centers and other practices that maybe consider understand the additional value that they may get from this. So from the academic centers, there's large-scale studies that can be done. We are preparing research quality data sets along with AAD that are ready to be used for publications. That's certainly one of the goals of our collaboration. And another important piece is that we're actually by using the data able to identify patients that may be eligible for a clinical trial. So mm-hmm. if different practices or academic centers are wondering what sort of patient profiles they may have rather than them having to do it themselves. We do have the ability to identify patients that may be potentially eligible. Great. Really exciting. Yeah. So I think we're hearing a lot of things that might be enticing to institutions, whether it be a QI application, research data sets that won't have access to, trial eligibility, even potentially advocacy, underrepresented populations clearly are a priority as well. All right, great. So we've seen a lot of the exciting current and future applications of the Datadurm registry. Dr. Sorlick, I wonder if you could bring us to a close just with a couple of sort of take-home points for listeners about the registry. So I think the registry is still in a relatively early state. That registries take a while to mature. And it is, in my estimation, it is remarkably functional at this point, despite its early age. And it is likely to become more and more important to individual practitioners and providing them feedback on what they want to work on, what they're doing well, 
what they're perhaps uh, not doing as well. Uh, and I think it will be you know, ultimately registries and the information of registries such as Dataderm are going to be integral into in terms of delivering care and understanding value and advocating for our specialty over the next 10 to 20 years. And it has been a challenge to start it up, but we're very excited as to where it is and look for it to really impact both medicine on a grand scale and medicine at the local level for everyday practitioners. Great. Thanks, Dr. Sherlock. Yeah, I get the sense this will be something we look back at 10 years and say, how do we ever live without this? It's got major applications across the board. Yeah, I use the seatbelt analogy. You know, I grew up when I was thrown in the back of the car and there were no seatbelts and you didn't feel uncomfortable not being buckled up. Now you get in a car and it's like, are you kidding? You know, what were we thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Right. This will be our cell phone. But right. So even in early days, we have a lot of functionality and major applications in many realms. Well, I just want to thank all of our interviewees for a great discussion on the tremendous potential for Dataderm. I hope it excites our listeners to get involved. And on that note, thanks to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.